Chapter 26 Rebecca dreamed a strange dream. She stood beside Yamoth on the first fear of Phyrexia, then gazed out from a low rill of black stone. The grasslands below, from the mountains to the forest, were covered with a huge thing. It seemed a fungus, brown-white fleshiness, sloping shelves, clustered stalks, opaquely bright, softly solid. The thing smelled of death and dirt, but also of life and renewal. What is this? Rebecca asked Yamoth in her dream. What has grown up here in your world? His look was incredulous. He gazed at Rebecca with such amazed joy, he seemed a young sun god. You don't know? Don't you recognize it? In fact, she didn't. It was clearly a Phyrexian plant. Its amorphous domes had the same contour as the low-lying mountains. Its stalks were as aggressive and alien as the compacted forest below. Its roots were swollen and sunk into the ground, exactly as Rebecca would have designed pilings for a foundation. The infirmary? Rebecca said breathlessly. It was her design. Yes, but it had grown. It proliferated like fungus. Rooftops had become dome after dome in a vast field. Stacked sick rooms had spread in a colony after colony. Footings had become literal roots, drawing power from the land. The building she had designed could have held a thousand patients. The building that had spread before her could hold hundreds of thousands. My infirmary? Phyresis, Yamath replied gently wrapping his arm around her shoulder. Progressive generation. Everything planted here grows. It changes. Evolves. Improves. It becomes larger and more powerful. It transcends its beginnings. The land transforms. The land, the power of the null sphere, and the god within the land. This colony is large enough to hold all houseites. More colonies are growing. Enough to hold all the empire. All the world. It was a strange dream. Rebecca felt certain it was a dream. In the half-logic of sleep, she could not tell whether the dream was hers or Yalmoth's. Even now, I've issued them an ultimatum, Rebecca. Even now, their commanders in their night encampments on the desert are reading my invitation. If they but surrender to me, unconditionally, they will be invited to join us here, in paradise. Rebecca drew a deep breath of fertile air. And if they do not surrender? He reached out enfolding her in his warm cloak. The embrace was loving and protecting. An ultimatum must have teeth in it. Within his robe, the strong, salty scent of him was omnipresent. It was the scent of Phyrexia, distilled to its essence. Breathing that scent infused Rebecca. She clung to him as a child to a powerful savior. He was warm and certain and strong. Within his cloak, all remained as it had been. Beyond it, in the tumbling synthesis of dream, the whole world transformed. When he drew back his cloak, the low mountains were gone, and the vast field, and the wooded cleft. Now they stood in a vaulted temple of iron strut and steel cable. Some metal columns rose to a fan vault of delicate metal tracery. Where bosses might have adorned a dominarian temple, here were clusters of bolts. Instead of wood carvings, massive hammer beams gleamed with rivets. The floor was mirror bright. Across that floor, in regular rank and file, stood artifact armies, as shiny as the world they occupied. These creatures of steel and glass and power stone gleamed coldly, most were man-sized, with arrays of articulated legs, compound eyes, segmented thoraxes. Others were mammoths in metal. They were built to plot, massive and unstoppable, through enemy ranks. Turrets of ray weapons perched upon their armored backs. In the half-distance, half-formed, were a few on the massive scale of the behemoths, lost in the first day of fighting, hunched and vicious, the hulls waited in vast immobility 
as crews of artificers swarmed them. The artificers seen maggots working over the empty husk. On Phyrexia, though, maggots did not decompose bodies, but composed them. In the far distance, a large factory stood. Lever arms labored against the horizon. Sparks left from welding arcs. Cascades of molten metal flowed into vast forms. This? Rebecca asked. This is your ultimatum? This is what will happen if they do not surrender? Yama smiled with quiet pride. This is one result. The siege armies will face these forces, and my Phyrexian guard in a land battle the likes of which has never been fought on Dominaria. I will slay only as long as they resist. These forces will give them the chance to repent their perverse war. With them, I can force an unconditional surrender and bring those who survive back into the fold among the rest of us. With these forces and the Null Sphere, I can rule all eight city-states. There need never be civil war again. It was Yalmoth's dream. Rebecca knew that now. But how could she be dreaming Yalmoth's dream? You speak as though there is a worse option. Yalmoth struck noncommittally. If they rebuff my offer. Again the robe enfolded her. The spaces danced away. It was a sensation like traveling with Dyfed. Rebecca had the sudden realization that at least here, at least within Phyrexia, Yalmoth had the power of a planeswalker. The cloak opened to reveal the center of that steaming, hissing, thundering mill they had been distantly seen. Machines towered. Smokestacks spewed. Cranes darted. Conveyors ground along. All among them, artificers moved. The gargantuan equipment made them seem only scuttling goblins. Phyrexian transformed them. It perfected them for their task. Skin grew rumpled and tough. Eyes grew wide in perpetual murk. There was not an ounce of fat on them. Their worksuits hung on lean, hungry muscles. Artificers and machines were not the most amazing sight. In their midst stood nine exquisite creations. They towered in a circle around Yamoth and Rebecca, their shiny fuselages, reflecting back to the attuned images of the two. Stone chargers, Rebecca said grimly. Yes. If they refuse my offer outright, not one of them will survive. The armies will be wiped out utterly. Nine more are being completed even now. One for each city-state beyond our own, and two for discretionary use. The city-states will be given the chance to surrender or be annihilated. Once the whole empire is fully in hand, there will be more bombs for every nation in the world. Once the world is mine, the Thran Empire will expand and take over the whole multiverse. Rebecca's heart flailed like a dying thing. She wished she could awaken from this dream. How can we hope to conquer the multiverse? We aren't planeswalkers. Oh, but we will be, my dear. Yamoth responded with certainty. We will be. He flung his cloak back about her. For the first time, she resented it. For the first time, she felt the tingling ache of the transit from sphere to sphere. It was as though she had been numbed by a drug that slowly wore off. Even as the spheres cycled around them, she knew this was no dream. This was the all-too-true state of Phyrexia. The cloak withdrew to reveal the most horrific sight so far. On this crimson sphere, lit by mile-high furnaces belching vast coronas of flame, the ground was lined with gigantic vats. Like furrows on a farm, they spread across the hills. Within each lurked a tormented soul, immersed in golden oil. Small vats held lifeless creatures, seemingly pickled. Others boiled with the thrashing agony of the animal within. Vat priests in their red vestments walked along catwalks above the vats. At intervals, they thrust power stone rods down into them, creatures that had been still, left in a sudden motion. They are called priests, Yama said. But really, they are mere farmers. They are raising crops of new creatures. They are raising Phyrexians. Rebecca could not even speak. 
She merely stood there, on a metal landing above the network of catwalks. One day, perhaps all Phyrexians will be planeswalkers. Eugenicists in the laboratories above are seeking the key. He took her hand, leaning her up a set of meshwork stairs toward a room at their top. The nine-sided chamber was made of polished steel and lighted with power stone lanterns. It gleamed into proud sterility. Only the red gowns of the four bat priests there gave any color to the chamber. Slabs of the same metal jutted from the walls, the size of pouts, but as cold and unwelcoming as shelves engraved catacombs. Just now, only one of the platforms was occupied. The four vat priests and an assortment of complex artifact machines clustered around the figure. Three of the priests worked diligently, their fingers gored to the third knuckle. Sibilient whispers moved among them from behind the black mask they wore. The final priest took assiduous notes of everything said. These are my very best surgeons, trained by me personally, Yama said. They have been working on the same patient for over a month now. They very carefully explored and documented every living tissue. Living? Rebecca peered past the priest. The creature in their midst could not have been alive. The woman was laid open. A long, clean slice ran from the central figure of her left arm, down the palm, across the wrist, along the length of the arm, over the shoulder, across the torso to the right hip, and down to the central toe. All along that cut mark, skin had been carefully flayed back and pinned. Beneath, muscles had been parsed, fatty layers picked apart, tendons cleft and clamped, bones sawn in two. Wherever an organ was revealed, the pores into and out of it had been mapped, with numbered pins that pulsed with the movements of fluids. Careful cuts had cloven the trembling outer sacs and laid open the warm centers. One severed lung seemed a pink spongy cake, here and there oozing cherry sauce. The vast and ruddy liver might have been a blood pudding through which someone had run a spoon. The pancreas was white and flaky like goat cheese. The kidney showed the intricate internal geometry of a cauliflower bulb. The intestines were gone entirely, and the stomach was merely a deflated sack. Still, the woman lived. Why are you doing this? Why are you tormenting her? Rebecca said, tears coursing down her face. She feels no torment. She no longer has the capacity to feel torment. What do you mean? Rebecca whispered. You've cut her wide open. How can she not feel torment? Every capacity of the human being has its seat in a specialized organ or system, Yamoth explained simply. Thought, motion, digestion, speech, reproduction, breathing, healing, pain. Disease is merely a dysfunction of these organs and systems. A person deprived of one of these organs is deprived of the capacity of the organ. We have deprived her of the organ of agony. Only then did Rebecca see the slim metal rod that jutted into the ragged cut in her forehead. The rod jiggled just slightly, with quiet but unmistakable rotation. Within that cracked skull, rotors moved. Rebecca fell to her knees, burying her head in her hands. Similarly, a person granted a specific organ is granted its capacity. Humans cannot fly, for we have not the organ of flight. Wings. Granted wings, we could soar like eagles. Why, Yamov? Why do you do this? If there is a planeswalker organ, and there must be one, this woman has it. I soon will have it as well. They will find it in her, and they will put it inside of me. You're a barbarian! You're a cannibal! Yamov stared down at her, honest confusion in his eyes. This is not barbarism. This is the truth. This is science. You kill your enemy and eat her heart and her brain, 
hoping to gain her courage and wisdom. But you'll never have courage. Only ruthlessness. And you'll never have wisdom. Only arrogance. He grasped her arm and yanked her to her feet. I do this for our people. I do this for you. When I'm a planeswalker, I can make all of us planeswalkers. Don't you see? It is better that this one woman die to save the whole nation. She tried to pull free, but his grip was implacable. Let go of me! Even as she struggled, Yalmoth's cloak swept around her. I will never let go of you, Rebecca. As long as I hold you, I have that courage you spoke of. That wisdom. You are the organ of ascendance. As long as I hold you, I am not merely perfected, but perfect. When the cloak opened again, there were no place in every place. It was dark space, and yet shot through with light. It was a chaos place. Yalmoth swelled to occupy it all. It receded before him until all was Yalmoth. He suffused her hair and clothes. He pressed against every inch of her. He shone his image into her eyes and sang into her ears. To breathe was to draw him into her lungs. And yet she must breathe. In the last gasping moments before his essence had permeated every last tissue and every curl of her brain, she shut away a secret that he would never know. Then, he wholly possessed her. He had desired this moment since he had walked into that infirmary room years ago. He had desired it, but never before had the consummation aided his plans. Now, at long last, it did. Suffusing her was like suffusing Phyrexia. He was the blood in her veins, the spark in her nerves. She sensed every corner of her being. He knew every thought. She was a world unto herself. Every memory, every thought was his. He saw the whole city when she arrived, and the city when her temple was complete, and the schematics of every building that had gone up in the meantime. He saw Glaceon when he was young and healthy, smelled ozone in the manor rig suit, felt the soft warmth of his hand. Yamath heard echoing speeches among the dissolved elder council, tasted the bitterness of the water she had drunk last night, glimpsed the refugees clustered in their silo. So this is what she is planning, he thought. She's planned to fly the refugees out of here, or is planning to do so. Surely not after this. Hatred. She hated him. She felt only terror and loathing in his presence. Part of that terror was respect, of course, but part of it was the realization that he could not be bested or even equaled. Respect was something, but he had expected love, not loathing. Perhaps it was only recent she had come to hate him. Was it when he took her away from Glaceon? No. Then she had felt drug-induced adoration. Was it when she saw her first Phyrexian up close? That had deepened the loathing and heightened her determination to save her city, but the hatred went back farther. It was only when he had dropped the first stone charger in the defile. It was there when he implanted the Phyrexian heartstone in Glaceon. It was even there, in natal form, when Dyfe had transported the imprisoned elders to Mercadia. Noting what that world looked like, Yalmoth pressed further back. Though slender and small, her tiny hatred stretched all the way back to their first meeting, when Yalmoth took a skin sample from her husband. Yes, but where there is hatred, there is also love. They are halves of a whole. Every love contains a third of hate, and every hate a third of love. She had no love for him. Not now, not ever. Yalmoth was astonished. He had been certain of her love. It no longer mattered. He possessed her utterly. He knew every secret. Nothing was hidden from him now. He was in every tissue, every thought. She no longer even had a mind without him. What need did he have for love? Phyrexia did not know me when I first touched her, but she has come to love me. Rebecca will be the same.
Perhaps a day passed before word of the threat attack came. They had slain all the steeplejacks. They had slaughtered the army guard on the road. They were scaling the walls in mass. They were climbing into the city. They were fighting in the streets. Yamath had his answer. His foes had refused the ultimatum. Their hatred was strong. There was not even a little love in it. He thought of the nine bombs, tall and gleaming. Yamal slowly withdrew himself in the enfolding heart of Phyrexia. He slowly withdrew himself from Rebek too. He would leave her here. There was no will left in her. Even when she wanted to escape, she couldn't. The heart of Phyrexia would keep her alive. Forever. With that thought, Yamath appeared in the midst of the nine stone chargers. Already, the artificers were busily loading them into a sled to bear them up into the city. Soon, soon the Thran will taste my anger.